Section 19 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6, Jeremy Taylor, Liberty of Christian Teaching Within the Church, Part 3. 2. Taylor follows up his explanation of faith by a very important chapter on the nature of heresy. The two chapters required to be taken together in order fully to understand the eclectic spirit of his theological and ecclesiastical system. As Christ is with him the sole comprehensive object of faith, so it is opposition to Christ, or denial of him as having come in the flesh to save sinners, which alone properly constitutes heresy. Quote, it is observable that no heresies are noted signanter in scripture, but such as are great errors practical, in materia pietatis, such whose doctrines taught impiety, or such who deny the coming of Christ directly or by consequence. Heresy, in short, is a wicked opinion and ungodly doctrine, and is never applied to doubtful speculative propositions, nor ever to pious persons. He insists greatly upon the latter point, as unmistakably evident in every notice of heresy in the New Testament. Quote, heresy is not an error of the understanding, but an error of the will, and this is clearly insinuated in Scripture, in the style whereof faith and a good life are made one duty, and vice is called opposite to faith, and heresy opposed to holiness and sanctity. St. Paul calls faith, or the form of sound words, cat usiban didascalian the doctrine that is according to godliness. And to believe in the truth, and to have pleasure in unrighteousness, are by the same apostle opposed. Quote, if we remember that St. Paul reckons heresy amongst the works of the flesh, and ranks it with all manner of practical impieties, we shall easily perceive that if a man mingles not a vice with his opinion, if he be innocent in his life, although deceived in his doctrine, his error is his misery, not his crime. Close quote. As the nature of faith, in short, is, so is the nature of heresy. Faith, if it be taken for an act of the understanding merely, has no value except to improve the understanding, as strength doth the arm or beauty the face. It is only when it mixes charity with it that it becomes moral or religious. And so, error which springs from involuntary causes, from ignorance of the truth or mistake regarding it, is no heresy in the New Testament sense, but only such as springs from ambition, willful sectarianism, love of preeminence, as in Diotrephes, or love of lucre, as it was in some that were of the circumcision. Footnote. Further on in the same section, he says, in a passage of sterling truth and force, quote, Error is not heresy formally, and an erring person may be a Catholic. A wicked person in his error becomes heretic, when the good man in the same error shall have all the rewards of faith. For whatever an ill man believes, if he therefore believe it because it serves his own ends, be his belief true or false, the man hath an heretical mind. For to serve his own ends, his mind is prepared to believe a lie. But a good man that believes what, according to his light and upon the use of his moral industry, he thinks true, whether he hits upon the right or no, because he hath a mind desirous of truth, and prepared to believe every truth, is therefore acceptable to God, because nothing hindered him from it but what he could not help, his misery and his weakness, which being imperfections merely natural, which God never punishes, he stands fair for a blessing of his morality, which God always accepts. Quote. And footnote. Quote. In all the animadversions against errors made by the apostles in the New Testament, no pious person was condemned, no man that did invincibly err, or bonamente, but something that was amiss in genere morum was that which the apostles did redargue. 
and it is very considerable that even they of the circumcision who in so great numbers did heartily believe in christ and yet most violently retained circumcision and without question went to heaven in great numbers yet of the number of these very men when they grew covetous and for filthy lucre's sake taught the same doctrine which others did in the simplicity of their hearts then they turned heretics and titus was commanded to look to them and to silence them Close quote. so broadly and leniently does he fix the character of heresy that he is careful to discriminate between an obstinacy of willful persistence of error which is highly criminal and such an obstinacy as may spring from a resolution of understanding which it is not in a man's power honestly to alter if a man cannot see reason for altering his opinion he not only may lawfully but he must honestly maintain it only he should do so in the spirit of love and peace as st cyprian did who persisted until death in his opinion of the necessity of rebaptizing heretics but in such a way as not to have his obstinacy called criminal or his own error turned into heresy no man is a heretic against his will and if it be pretended that every man that is deceived is therefore proud because he does not submit his understanding to the authority of god and so his error becomes heresy to this he answers just as chillingworth did in the same case that there is no christian man but will submit his understanding to god always provided he knows that god hath said so submission to authority in short is a good principle which every christian man recognizes but the recognition of the principle is no warrant of any special application made of it all the force of the principle depends in every case upon the character of the authority is it truly divine then it claims universal submission all who acknowledge god will acknowledge god's authority but then it must be evident that the authority is divine and nothing short of this or different from this and so quote, the whole business of submitting our understanding to human authority comes to nothing for either it resolves itself into the direct duty of submitting to god or if it be spoken of abstractedly it is no duty at all having thus defined the nature of heresy he occupies the rest of the chapter with a somewhat detailed review of the various heresies in the early christian centuries even after the apostolic time he shows that no men were really esteemed heretics unless they either taught practical impieties or denied an article of the creed so long as the foundation was preserved entire great liberty of opinion was permitted and no man's error was condemned as heresy but the further men went from the apostles the more forward were they in numbering heresies and the state of the church in the second and third centuries appears to taylor to have promoted this growth of heresies for as yet there was no general court or council of appeal on disputed questions bishops were for the most part independent in their respective provinces and there was no principle or criterion of christian judgment besides the single dictates or decretals of private bishops scripture was professed to be authoritative by all but the question was as to the meaning of it this multiplication of episcopal authority in matters of opinion has led according to him to great confusion and misconception in the traditional lists or catalogues of heretics some men being condemned for opinions the very reverse of what they held as montanus is by epiphanius and others as nicholas the deacon of antioch is by jerome having their views completely misrepresented by a perversion or exaggeration of their language the example of cyprian however shows that there was no curtailment of christian liberty within the church even during the third century a liberty of prophesying or of interpretation was not forbidden to any one if he transgressed not the foundation of faith and the creed of the apostles 
the first violation of this freedom was when general councils came in and the symbols were enlarged and new articles were made as much of necessity to be believed as the creed of the apostles and damnation threatened to them that did dissent he expresses this opinion all the more forcibly because he has no quarrel with the enlarging of the creed which the council of nice made it appears to him to have been an enlargement in the true sense of the apostles but to others it appears in a different light they think that the church would have been more happy quote, if she had not been in some sense constrained to alter the simplicity of her faith and make it more curious and articulate so much that he had need to be a subtle man to understand the very words of the new determinations Close quote. according to them and evidently also according to his own view quote, those creeds are best which keep the very words of scripture and that faith is best which hath greatest simplicity and it is better in all cases humbly to submit than curiously to inquire and pry into the mystery under the cloud and to hazard our faith by improving our knowledge the nicene fathers are admitted to have done well in their peculiar circumstances in enlarging and defining the creed yet they would have done still better taylor thinks in leaving it undefined for an authoritative definition as in the case of the homoousion although it may be of good use to determine the judgment of indifferent persons is apt to be a weapon of affront against the scrupulous in the hands of persons of confident and imperious understandings while quote, they against whom the decision is do the more readily betake themselves to the defensive and are engaged upon contestation and public enmities for such articles which either might safely be unknown or with much charity disputed Close quote. therefore he adds quote, the Nicene Council, although it have the advantage of an acquired and prescribing authority, yet it must not become a precedent to others, lest the inconveniences of multiplying more articles upon as great pretense of reason as then make the act of the Nicene Fathers, in straightening prophesying and enlarging the creed, become accidentally an inconvenience. The power is a dangerous one, although in this case it was well exercised it is like an arbitrary power which so long as it takes only sixpence from the subject produces no inconvenience but which by the same reason may take a hundred pounds and then a thousand and so sensible of this were the early fathers themselves that as is well known they pronounced at the council of ephesus anathema on all those who should add anything to the creed footnote taylor says the creed of constantinople following the common tradition which ascribes the enlargement of the third part of the creed to the second ecumenical council which met at constantinople in three eighty one but it is now well known that in the records of this council there is no trace of any additions having been proposed or made to the creed of nicaea this creed on the contrary is appealed to in its primary form as adequate for all theological purposes it was not till the fourth general council in four fifty one that the creed now known as that of constantinople or sometimes spoken of as the niceno constantinopolitan crept into use and became generally professed by the christian church with the exception of the nestorians who had been previously separated from the general church at chalcedon in four thirty one and footnote and yet for all this he continues quote, the church of rome added the clause filioque to the article of the procession of the holy ghost and what they have done since all the world knows all men were persuaded that it was most reasonable the limits of faith should be no more enlarged but yet enlarged it themselves and bound others from doing it like an intemperate father who because he knows he does ill himself enjoins temperance to his son but continues to be intemperate himself of the athanasian creed it may be supposed taylor expresses a very modified approval 
for the articles themselves he is persuaded of their truth yet he admits that to many people they are unintelligible contrary to reason and in their curiosities of explication unwarranted by scripture the damnatory appendix is entirely unjustifiable because citra hoc symbolum the faith of the apostles is entire and he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved admitting the creed to be the production of athanasius there is no evidence that he designed it as a symbol of communion according to aquinas it was made non per modum symboli sed per modum doctrinae that it is not with a purpose to impose it upon others but with confidence to declare his own belief to prescribe it to others as a creed was the act of the bishops of rome but it is doubtful taylor recognizes whether it be the creed of athanasius at all the original being evidently latin and not greek footnote his words are quote, this creed was written originally in latin which in all reason athanasius did not it being apparent that the latin copy is but one but the greek is various End footnote. he affirms at the same time that even the athanasian creed makes no pretense of adding any new articles to the christian faith but simply of explaining further the articles apostolical if it be maintained that the explanations are to be received as necessarily of faith as the dogmatical articles of the apostles creed taylor abandons their defence but the saying of athanasius this is the catholic faith is at least a warrant that quote, no man can say of any other article that it is a part of the catholic faith or that the catholic faith can be enlarged beyond the contents of that symbol Close quote. In conclusion, he recurs to the Apostles' Creed as the only necessary symbol of Christian communion. It was so in the early Christian age, and dare any man tax that proceeding of remissness and indifference in religion? The Creed is an adequate security of faith. It contains implicitly, if not explicitly, all other articles, and, quote, it is better the implication should continue than that by an explication the church should be troubled with questions and uncertain determinations and factions enkindled and animosities set on foot and men's souls endangered who before were secure by the explicit belief of all that the apostles required as necessary the sum of his argument is that whereas the nature of faith is in all cases moral and not merely intellectual binding us to honor christ and to obey him so heresy is to be judged by its proportion and analogy to faith heresy is only that which is against faith in the true sense that is to say which strikes at the foundation of christianity embodied in the apostles creed or teaches ill life all other propositions which are extrinsical to these two considerations whether they be true or false are not heretical three in the six following sections of his work taylor passes under review the alleged special sources of authority in religious opinion scripture tradition ecclesiastical councils the pope and the fathers he adds a brief section on the church in its diffusive capacity and the pretense of the spirit but he thinks it unnecessary to consider these at length for the church must either speak by tradition or by a representative body in a council by popes or by the fathers it is not a chimera or shadow but a company of men believing in jesus christ whose opinions can only be known by one or other of those channels footnote coleridge quarrels with taylor as to these expressions in his peculiar manner notes etc one two twenty five but here as elsewhere in his elaborate notes on the liberty of prophesying he mistakes taylor and makes no allowance for his special point of view and the context of the argument taylor had no intention of denying the substantive entity of the church but merely wished to make it clear that its voice could only be known through some definite channel 
coleridge is thinking more of himself and of his own transcendentalism than of doing justice to taylor and this pretentious egoism runs unpleasantly through all his notes on english divines End footnote. the pretense of the spirit again even if admissible is impertinent to the question because in its nature it is only of private application such infallible assistance he says may determine my own assent but shall not enable me to prescribe to others the other professed sources of infallibility deserve more particular consideration and may be viewed together as a distinct division of his work a all necessary articles of faith as well as of practice are plainly and clearly set down in scripture the gospel is not hid except to them who refuse to see and acknowledge it but beyond such a simple knowledge of the truth as makes us wise unto salvation there is no infallible declaration of theological opinion in scripture or at least men have no infallible means of determining what this opinion is Quote, besides those things which are so plainly set down some for doctrine as st paul says that is for articles and foundation of faith some for instruction some for reproof some for comfort that is in matters practical and speculative of several tempers and constitutions there are innumerable places containing in them great mysteries but yet either so enwrapped with a cloud or so darkened with umbrages or heightened with expressions or so covered with allegories and garments of rhetoric so profound in the matter or so altered or made intricate in the manner in the clothing and dressing that god may seem to have left them as trials of our industry and arguments of our imperfections and incentives to the longings after heaven and the clearest revelations of eternity and as occasions and opportunities of our mutual charity and toleration to each other and humility in ourselves rather than the repositories of faith and furniture of creeds and articles of belief he dwells at some length on the varieties of copies and readings of holy scripture on the many senses and designs of expounding it its figurative and double meanings what he says on these subjects is not much to the point and modern criticism would not stumble at some of the difficulties he sets forth his general argument however remains quite untouched by any progress of criticism where a question arises as to the meaning of scripture we have no means of determining it infallibly and certainly no one is entitled to dictate to another as to what he shall accept as the meaning of scripture and the necessity hence arises of quote, allowing a liberty in prophesying without prescribing authoritatively to other men's consciences and becoming lords and masters of their faith Close quote. after explaining various ways of reaching the meaning of scripture by the context and connection of the parts by the conference of places by a proportion and analogy of reason by the analogy of faith and lastly by consulting the originals he concludes that all these ways quote, which of themselves are good helps are made either by design or by our infirmities ways of intricating and involving scripture in greater difficulty because men do not learn their doctrines from scripture but come to the understanding of scripture with preconceptions and ideas of doctrines of their own and then no wonder that scriptures look like pictures wherein every man in the room believes that they look on him only and that wheresoever he stands or how often soever he changes his station so that now what was intended for a remedy becomes the promoter of our disease and our meat becomes the matter of sickness and the mischief is the wit of man cannot find a remedy for it for there is no rule no limit no certain principle by which all men may be guided to a certain and so infallible an interpretation that he can with any equity prescribe to others to believe his interpretations in places of controversy or ambiguity Close quote. 
and in evidence of this taylor proceeds to show that even in the case of what appears to many so clear and determinate a prophecy as that of jacob about the sceptre not departing from judah till shiloh come the jews have no fewer than twenty-six explanations while in reference to the diversity of st james and st paul regarding justification a diversity he adds to my understanding very easy to reconcile osiander observes in his confutation of the book which melanchthon wrote against him that there are twenty several opinions concerning justification all drawn from the scriptures by men only of the augustan confession there are taylor adds quote, sixteen several opinions concerning original sin and as many definitions of the sacraments as there are sects of men that disagree about them Close quote. the result of the two chapters which he devotes to the consideration of holy scripture is that while it contains plainly in a manner apparent to all the articles of the apostles creed which are therefore of simple and prime necessity there is nothing further which a wise man would wish to have imposed upon himself or which a just man would wish to impose upon others a liberty of prophesying and interpreting scripture is therefore the right of every man quote, a necessity derived from the consideration of the difficulty of scripture in questions controverted and the uncertainty of any internal medium of interpretation Close quote b tradition which he next considers is affirmed to be as fallible as anything else the fathers themselves possessed no consistent traditional guide on the contrary they were infinitely deceived in their account and enumerations of traditions and the further we descend from the fountainhead of the christian revelation the more varying and contradictory is found to be the course of tradition augustine maintained the communicating of infants to be an apostolic tradition and many other things notoriously of later and corrupt growth were traced back to a primitive sanction on the other hand many things of apostolic custom have quote, expired and gone out in a desuetude such as abstinence from blood and things strangled the cenobitic life of secular persons the college of widows to worship standing upon the lord's day to give milk and honey to the newly baptized and many more of the like nature Close quote moreover the fathers themselves are found to appeal from tradition and custom to holy scripture irenaeus basil jerome augustine athanasius and divers others all unite in the saying of saint paul nemo sentiat super quod scriptum est all in effect maintain that every article of faith is sufficiently recorded in holy scripture and that the judgment of faith and heresy is to be derived from thence alone c the judgment of general councils carries with them no further weight than belongs to their intrinsic reasonableness they have no promise of supernatural direction beyond what belongs to every individual every private man will be assisted sufficiently by the holy spirit quote, in order to that end to which he needs assistance and therefore much more shall general councils in order to that end for which they convene and to which they need assistance that is in order to the conservation of faith for the doctrinal rules of good life and all that concerns the essential duty of a christian but not in deciding questions to satisfy contentious or curious or presumptuous spirits he explains how general councils have never been pronounced by the church and never been accepted as infallible how they have contradicted each other and in some cases been notoriously corrupt the opinion of gregory nazianzen is quoted to the effect that he had such a poor opinion of councils of bishops that he had quote, never known one of them come to any good and prosperous issue or which did not rather tend to the increase than the diminution of wickedness Close quote. he refrains at the same time from endorsing this opinion and sets forth in a fair and discriminating manner what he conceives to be the true uses of church councils they may be excellent instruments of peace 
rare sermons for determining a point in controversy, and possess the greatest probability from human authority. But further, he knew nothing they can pretend to be, with reason and argument sufficient to satisfy any wise man. There never was any council so general that it might not have been more general in respect of the whole church. Even that of Nice itself was but a small assembly. There is no decree so well constituted, but it may be proved by an argument higher than the authority of a council. General councils are therefore, in their several degrees, quote, excellent guides for the prophets, and directions and instructions for their prophesying, but not of weight and authority to restrain their liberty so wholly, but that they may dissent where they see a reason strong enough to persuade them. Close quote. D. It is unnecessary to dwell upon his special argument respecting the claim of papal infallibility. He first deals with the usual scriptural argument as to the special powers alleged to be vested in the Apostle Peter, and then, making the supposition that there is something in these arguments, which he does not allow, he points out the absurdity of the Pope claiming to represent St. Peter. So far from the Popes or their ancestors having any claim to expound the truth infallibly, there have been among them some, quote, notorious heretics and preachers of false doctrines, some that made impious decrees both in faith and manners, some that have determined questions with egregious ignorance and stupidity, some with apparent sophistry, and many to serve their own ends most openly. In short, he comes to the conclusion that, if he were bound to call any man master upon earth, he would, quote, of all men, least follow him that pretends he is infallible and cannot prove it. For that he cannot prove it makes me as uncertain as ever, and that he pretends to infallibility makes him careless of using such means which will morally secure those wise persons who, knowing their own aptness to be deceived, use what endeavors they can to secure themselves from error, and so become the better and more probable guides. Quote. e the inconsistencies of the fathers and their consequent disability to determine questions with certainty and truth are next insisted upon in a separate section he points out the various topics on which they have disagreed and the errors such as chiliasm and infant communicating which have widely prevailed among them he alludes to daillet's well-known work du vrai usage des pères then lately published and seems to coincide with its general conclusions at the same time, he abstains from, quote, all disparagement of these worthy personages, who were excellent lights to their several dioceses and cures. It is not to be denied, but that great advantages are to be made by their writings, all of them containing some probable things according to their wisdom. If one wise man, he adds forcibly, says a thing, it is an argument to me to believe in its degree of probation, that is, proportionable to such an assent as the authority of a wise man can produce, and when there is nothing against it that is greater. But that which I complain of is, that we look upon wise men that lived long ago with so much veneration and mistake that we reverence them not for having been wise men, but that they lived long since. Quote. 4. Having thus examined and discarded all these several sources of pretended authority in theological opinion, he turns, in a very pregnant and interesting section, to discuss the authority of reason, and that it, proceeding upon best grounds, is the best judge. His conclusions here are substantially the same as those of Chillingworth. Reason and private judgment must be the last authority of every man in the face of Scripture. Both of them would have strongly repudiated what in our days is known as rationalism, or the exaltation of the private understanding in the place of divine revelation. It never occurred to them to doubt the reality of revelation, and its supremacy over the conscience and reason. The question is not one as to the ultimate source of religious truth. This was admitted beyond doubt to be the divine revelation in Scripture. 
but admitting this there remained the question as to the interpretation of this revelation and here it is that both chillingworth and taylor assert in the strongest manner the claims of reason what the truth is as revealed in scripture every man must be trusted to judge for himself i say he adds quote, every man that can judge at all as for others they are to be saved as it pleaseth god he that follows his own reason not guided only by natural arguments but by divine revelation and all other good means hath great advantages over him that follows any human guide whatsoever because he follows all their reason and his own too Close quote. in the conscientious exercise of private judgment there is in short the best security for right religious opinions and if with all our pains and diligence to investigate the truth we should after all fall into error it is to be borne in mind that it is not required of us not to be in error but that we may endeavour to avoid it this last touch is extremely like chillingworth it is the very echo of his manly sense and charity and the whole of the section reminds us of some of the best passages in the religion of protestants intelligent inquiry is enforced as a christian duty no less than intelligent obedience we are commanded to search the scriptures to quote, try the spirits whether they be of god or no to try all things and to retain that which is best for he that resolves not to consider resolves not to be careful whether he hath truth or no and therefore hath an affection indifferent to truth or falsehood which is all one as if he did choose amiss Close quote. and not only is inquiry a duty it is a necessity for every man all men really follow the guidance of their own judgment in some degree although they may profess to follow other guides if they accept the church on tradition or a certain sense of scripture it is because they have some reason for what they do Quote, although all men are not wise and proceed discreetly yet all make their choice some way or other he that chooses to please his fancy takes his choice as much as he that chooses prudently and no man speaks more unreasonably than he that denies to men the use of their reason in choice of their religion Close quote. it will be seen therefore that the general position of taylor in the liberty of prophesying is identical with that of chillingworth in the religion of protestants the conclusions which the latter reaches in a special conflict with the resurgent spirit of romanism in england in the time of laud the former maintains professedly in a treatise written with a view to still the strife of ecclesiastical bigotry and faction in the time of the civil war chillingworth shows a firmer mastery of principles a more downright and vigorous thoughtfulness in the midst of all the special details of his argument but taylor draws out his principles with a more comprehensive range and purpose and sets the problem of his time the reconstitution of the church on an evangelical yet tolerant basis in a more definite light this problem appears in chillingworth's pages only indirectly but this is expressly the question which taylor set himself to solve in the view of the jarring parties of his time his solution is that the church should rest on the apostles creed neither more nor less and that there should be the widest toleration of opinions ranging from anabaptism to popery he devotes a special section to the discussion of the case of the anabaptists and concludes that as there is no direct impiety in their opinion and so much which may be fairly urged in its defence they are to be redargued or instructed but in no respect to be coerced his liberality towards a sect so hateful to all classes of dogmatists in the seventeenth century and the extremely impartial manner in which he had set forth what might tend in behalf of their opinions involved him in special suspicion and he felt himself under the necessity of answering in an appendix his own arguments on behalf of this sect 
nothing is more creditable to taylor than his frank liberality in this case as nothing can better illustrate the intolerant spirit of the seventeenth-century dogmatism than the obligation under which he felt of showing that his meaning was innocent and that while maintaining that an ample case could be made out for the toleration of the anabaptists he did not mean in any respect to weaken what he believed to be the truth or to discourage the right side to taylor there was no error intolerable which was not impious or licentious opposed to the fundamental principles of the christian religion or to good morals and government and the christian church instead of seeking to narrow its terms of communion was bound by every consideration of christian truth and policy to open its doors as widely as possible for all who would come in the faith of the apostles entitles all who hold it to the communion of saints Quote, to make the way to heaven straighter than god made it or to deny to communicate with those whom god will vouchsafe to be invited and to refuse our charity to those who have the same faith because they have not all our opinions is impious and schismatical it infers tyranny on one part and persuades and tempts to uncharitableness and animosities on both there is no reason why individual christians should not communicate with churches of different persuasions if they require no impiety or anything unlawful as the condition of their communion communion with them merely implies that we acknowledge them as servants of christ as disciples of his doctrine and subjects to his laws while their particular distinguishing doctrine has no effect with us beyond the primitive facts of the gospel in short taylor does not recognize any valid basis for the christian church or any valid terms of christian communion he was no doubt as we have seen himself an earnest defender of episcopacy for the perfect order of the church he would certainly have maintained the necessity of episcopal government and of liturgical worship his writings leave this beyond question but that episcopacy or a liturgy has anything to do essentially with a man being a christian or with the recognition of christian brotherhood is an opinion opposed to the whole spirit of his great treatise and to many of its express statements a christian is one who accepts christ as his saviour and lord and orders his life under the inspiration of this simple but mighty faith a christian church is a society of men who acknowledge the same faith and walk by the same rule these are the essentials all else is accidental no error is damnable which may be held with an honest mind Quote, it concerns all persons to see that they do their best to find out truth and if they do it is certain that let the error be never so damnable they shall escape the error or the misery of being damned for it and if god will not be angry with men for being invincibly deceived why should men be angry one at another all opinions in which the public interests of the commonwealth and the foundation of faith and a good life are not concerned are to be permitted freely let every one be persuaded in his own mind was the doctrine of st paul and that is argument and conclusion too and they were excellent words which st ambrose said in attestation of this great truth imperial authority has no right to interdict the liberty of speaking or sacerdotal authority to prevent the speaking of what you think footnote nec imperiale est libertatem descendi negare nec sacerdotale quod senties non dissere and footnote nothing can be more beautiful than the close of taylor's treatise it condenses in a parable the whole pith of his argument and the effect lingers in the memory as a lofty strain of music which has melted into pathos ere it dies i end with a story he says which i find in the jews books it was long doubtful whether taylor did not mean under this indefinite nomenclature to hide an invention of his own rich and beautiful fancy but as heber explains the source of the story has at length been discovered 
not in a Jewish work, but in a tale of the Persian poet Sa'adi. The story is as follows. Quote, when Abraham sat at his tent door, according to his custom, waiting to entertain strangers, he espied an old man stooping and leaning on his staff, weary with age and travail, coming towards him, who was an hundred years of age. He received him kindly, washed his feet, provided supper, caused him to sit down. But observing that the old man sat and prayed not, nor begged for a blessing on his meat, he asked him why he did not worship the God of heaven. The old man told him that he worshipped the fire only, and acknowledged no other god. At which answer Abraham grew so zealously angry that he thrust the old man out of his tent, and exposed him to all the evils of the night and an unguarded condition. When the old man was gone, God called to Abraham, and asked him where the stranger was. He replied, I thrust him away, because he did not worship thee. God answered him, I have suffered him these hundred years, although he dishonoured me and couldst not thou endure him one night, when he gave thee no trouble? Upon this, saith the story, Abraham fetched him back again, and gave him hospitable entertainment and wise instruction. Go thou and do likewise, he adds, and thy charity will be rewarded by the God of Abraham. The lesson is one, unhappily, which requires constant repetition in the history of the Christian Church. End of chapter 6, part 3